0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives as always. And Jim, we always love martinis that unify. We don't get them very often. But 80 years ago today, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, a horrible day but one that galvanized this country in ways that we've rarely seen over our 200-plus year history. It's hard to believe it's 80 years ago now. I remember as a kid, my dad showing me the Time magazine cover he had just gotten of the 40th anniversary of D-Day. And, you know, obviously the 40th anniversary of Pearl Harbor had been three years before that. But uh, now we're double that, 80 years um, due to the veterans work that I have. I've had the chance to interview a few Pearl Harbor survivors, including two just about a month ago, who are still very with it, even though they're over 100 years old. I think it's also uh, interesting that, you know, we have our moments that are indelible in our minds, the 9-11 attacks, Challenger, for people roughly our age. But other folks, it's Kennedy. And for folks on the older side now, it's certainly uh, Pearl Harbor, in addition to those other events. So uh, it's just amazing how quickly time goes and how important it is to
1: remember them. Well put. Um I envy you having the chance to speak to those survivors and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting how like this is long before our time, and yet our parents were old enough to be shaped by the world that came forth after Pearl Harbor. My dad was born the year before uh, Pearl Harbor occurred. Clearly, he was shaped by, you know, kind of the the after effects of World War II, which shaped the Cold War, which shaped the post-Cold War consensus. And of course, we are now well past the post-Cold War consensus. We all kind of, you know, everything that happens ends up having these kind of reverberations throughout history. And I think you can still kind of feel like it today. We talk about 9-11 as the Pearl Harbor of our generation. People warn about a cyber Pearl Harbor. It has become this cultural touchstone for a surprise attack that leaves us temporarily devastated, thankfully not, you know, long-term devastated. It was like, as you, as you said, it was a galvanizing moment. But anyway, um, it, is, it was indeed a day that li- live in infamy, but I think the, uh, it also is remembered as the awakening of a sleeping giant. And it was a, uh, uh, but, you know, I- ironically, the beginning of the end for, for Imperial Japan.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing the fact that we won two different wars, essentially, two different fronts in less than four years. But uh, yeah, so 80 years ago, uh, if you know any World War II vets and certainly any Pearl Harbor vets, those numbers are lower now, 16 million in uniform during World War II, about 300,000 left. And I think it's just probably a couple hundred uh, Pearl Harbor vets. If you know them, reach out to them and any vets that you know, uh, say thank you. But uh, very important to remember on this day, and it's good to see a lot of folks on social media and beyond doing that. But on to our regular fare here, Jim, and uh, let's talk about conservatives being proved right again. We don't like the actual story that people are losing their jobs, but we say this over and over and over again. You think you're helping people by raising the minimum wage. Let me tell you something you're not helping people. You're going to end up costing them their jobs because the margins on labor are pretty slim. And so when you force people to pay people more than uh, potentially the value they bring into your business, they have no choice but to let them go. And not having a job, as it turns out, actually pays you less than a slightly smaller minimum wage. So the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, with this story, St. Paul Restaurants and Retailers, St. Paul, Minnesota, began cutting jobs and reducing hours even before the city's new minimum wage went into effect in July last year, according to a pair of analyses commissioned by the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and the University of Minnesota. The research, published Sunday by the St. Paul Pioneer Press, shows that full-service restaurants saw a 16% decline in jobs, while limited-service restaurants, such as fast food joints, saw a drop of 27%. Minneapolis, which began raising its minimum wage two years before St. Paul, lost nearly 3,000 restaurant jobs over the same period. Researchers said the findings suggest restaurants were fairly sensitive to the mandated wage hikes. Big surprise and so businesses were forced to actually increase wages during the pandemic which just added to the economic crunch of people not being able to dine in and obviously fewer customers coming in many cases and so it's painful to have this lesson learned again but we keep learning it we saw it in seattle when they went to 15 uh pretty much right away you can't accomplish what you think you can accomplish by doing this
1: greg i noticed in our politics we spend a lot of time Arguing motives. Uh, Social media is particularly bad for encouraging this sort of thing. And you find yourself, you know, if you're a conservative and you think a minimum wage hike is a bad idea. The odds are very good that at some point you're going to get told, you know, you just want people to be poor, you hate the working poor, you're, you're greedy, you're selfish, and you know, you just don't want to pay a few more pennies for your Big Mac or, or something like that. It's all about, you know, you, you're a bad person, you want people to suffer, all that kind of stuff. I think it's safe to say that if minimum wage hikes worked and did not lead to layoffs and did not lead to complications and did not lead to slowdowns in hiring and did not lead to price hikes and all that, we'd much, be much bigger fans. If it worked the way it was supposed to, the supporters of minimum wage hikes would have a much stronger argument. Unfortunately, the world is complicated. The world does not always work out the way you do. And when you decide we're going to force employers to pay workers more money, well, then employers don't just necessarily say, okay, I'm going to have lower, I'm, I'm going to happily embrace having smaller profits. Uh, I'm a big corporation. I'm going to happily embrace having smaller dividends for my investors. Uh, I'm going to happily embrace uh, paying less for, you know, uh, the potatoes that that McDonald's uses to make French fries and stuff like that. No, no. But inevitably that money's got to come from somewhere. And very often one group of workers benefits at the expense of another group of workers or the workers in the here and now get hurt by a slower rate of hiring for future people who need to go find out and get work. There's another recent example of this about how the world doesn't always work the way you think it should. I have colleagues and and friends and folks who uh, very strongly believe that uh, prostitution should be legalized, and I have friends and you know very smart people who believe, no, no, it definitely should not be legalized. It is a very bad thing that breeds criminality, and uh, despite the argument that it's a victimless crime, only bad things happen. Well, over in Europe, quite a few countries have legalized prostitution. A lot of people say, "Oh, well, that's good, right?" That you know, you just have the exchanging of goods, of money for services, so to speak, and everybody lives happily ever after. That's not a happy ending joke, but you can you know come to the conclusions you like. And they've done studies of this. And unfortunately, there still is human trafficking in Europe. There still is uh, violence involved in prostitution in Europe. There still are violent pimps. All these things uh, that we associate with the social ills that come with prostitution. And we say, well, wait a second. If they legalized it, why didn't things get better? Why didn't these problems go away? An unfortunate answer is that once you legalize it, you increase demand. You increase demand, that increases demands for both legal prostitution and for illegal prostitution. And you end up with some of those social problems you're trying to eliminate, they get worse anyway, including human trafficking, spread of diseases, and things like that. The world doesn't always work the way you think it should. And your policy solutions have to apply for the way the world is not some sort of ideal theoretical thing that you drew up in the on the drawing board or up in your ivory tower of academia or something like that. It would be nice if raising the minimum wage did not have any bad consequences for any workers anywhere. Unfortunately, they do. Now, does it mean that you should never raise the minimum wage? I guess I could be persuaded if it hasn't been raised in a really long time or the argument of indexing it. I used to support indexing it to inflation, but... Uh, Great. That's a little bit dangerous these days. <laughs> you yes, yes. have to problem. double it every couple of months. I exaggerate <laughs> slightly. If you do have
0: money, whether it's uh, by saving your minimum wage earnings or or your other wages, uh, investing is a good way to make that money grow so you're not relying entirely on your paycheck but you can let the market work for you and the market for gold and silver is no different for example the price of silver has increased 340 percent since 2000 and it continues trending higher and if you want to explore the world of investing in silver and gold you want to
1: head to universal coin and bullion universal coin and bullion is offering our listeners a special locked in price of just 30 dollars for a beautiful one ounce 2021 american silver eagle coin the most popular coin in the world for collectors and investors. This limited offer is available at dealer's cost because Universal Coin wants you to own the first newly designed silver bullion coin since President Reagan signed the Gold Bullion Act in 1985. Call Universal Coin, the leaders in the precious metals industry, at 1-800-UCB-GOLD to get your beautiful U.S. Mint silver coin for only $30. Postage is free and you can rest assured you'll be dealing with the experts. Yeah, nobody better at guiding you through this process than Dr. Mike Fulgens and
0: his team at Universal Coin and Bullion. Fulgens is America's gold expert. He's the 2021 Coin Dealer of the Year. There's really no one better at this. They have rare gold coins, too, but the special silver deal only available using our code Martini. So make sure you use that code Martini when you call 800-UCB-GOLD. Again, 800-UCB-GOLD. All right, Jim, we had a plethora of potential bad martinis today, but uh, congratulations to the White House uh, for winning today's uh, competition. Uh, This is actually courtesy of uh, CNN and their Reliable Sources newsletter. So this is actually, I'm going to assume, from Brian Stelter and his crew. But uh, this is what's happening. They say, Scoop, the White House not happy with the news media's coverage of the supply chain and economy, and has been working behind the scenes trying to reshape coverage in its favor. Senior White House and administration officials, including NEC, uh, Deputy Directors David Kamen and Bharat Ramamurthy, along with Ports Envoy John Perkari, have been briefing major newsrooms over the past week. The officials have been discussing with newsrooms trends pertaining to job creation, economic growth, supply chains, and more. The basic argument has been made that the country's economy is in much better shape than it was last year. In bold letters now, I'm told the conversations have been productive with anchors and reporters and producers getting to talk. With the officials, so Jim, the idea of a Republican president uh, telling the media, "Hey, you need to cover me more favorably," probably would have resulted in a pretty severe backlash from most in the mainstream media. And then this argument that the economy is in better shape than it was at this time last year. Well, yeah, it's it's slightly better. It's not meeting a lot of expectations, but uh, when you compare it to the middle of a pandemic, you're generally going to come out looking slightly better. So, what do you make of the White House uh, trying to twist the arm of the media here?
1: Duh. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you're here to give us this super secret double probation off the record briefing to let us in on these grand economic revelations by the administration officials. What's kind of mind boggling about this, Greg, is it, it really does suggest that this administration really does believe that they're generating excellent results. And the problem is that American people are just either too spoiled to appreciate them Think about that 14 cents you saved at the 4th of July, Americans. You know? <laughs> um, Or, you know, or oh, stop whining that you're Bowflex or whatever the, the Peloton won't be delivered on time. The comments we saw from Jen Psaki. Uh, Biden you know, last week comparing the, the shortages to that of Cabbage Patch dolls and uh, uh, Beanie Babies back in the 90s and stuff like that. They really seem to think it's just a messaging problem. If we just could convince the media to cover us nicer, To cover us better. If we just stopped being so critical, everybody would think we're doing better. Well, I'm going to give the Biden administration a couple, a a molecule or two of credit and to say, here's, there is an aspect of the economy that's, well, as I said, with the, the, uh, between the vaccinations and the people who've got natural immunity. Yeah, COVID-19 is not the factor in our lives in 2021 that it was in 2020. Uh, We're still waiting to see on the Omicron variant. There's some reports that say it seems like it's, yes, it's super duper contagious, but it's Not any more virulent. In fact, most of the people in South Africa have pretty mild cases. Hey, if that's the case, great news. You know, don't have to worry as much. Um, And and the other aspect of the economy I think is doing well is you know, last according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, there you know, last business day of September, there are 10.4 million job openings in the country. One of the great ironies is that you know, when the economy get gets bad. Uh, people get laid off. Unemployment rises. You know, generally, the, the, the uh, you know, response of a president or Congress, you know, we have to figure out how to create jobs. We're going to enact policies that are going to help people. Grow. We've actually created a lot of jobs. We've had yeah, 10.4 million job openings. I think at one point it was as high as 10.9 million. As I'd like to point out, you see help wanted signs, and then you see we're hiring signs, and then you start seeing please be patient. We are understaffed signs. That's actually not that. So there's one aspect of the, of the economy, job creation, that's actually doing quite well. There are other, really what we have is a labor shortage. Really, we, we don't have people in those jobs, which is causing all these businesses to have a much harder time uh, serving their customers and making ends meet. me. We have a supply chain crisis, which oh, by the way, is not any better. I want to give a call, shout out to my colleague, Dominic Pino, who looked at the numbers for the ports out in, in California, uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach. And it looked like you know, last week I'd reported it said, oh, you know, actually, according to this, the number of ships waiting has declined quite a bit. It's actually not the case at all. What they did was they sent the ships that were uh, apparently idling and emitting fumes or, or something like that. They sent them further out, <laughs> out beyond the measuring stick. So they're no longer counted as waiting for a port space. So actually, it's a little bit higher than it was in November. They couldn't actually improve the rate of getting the ships in and out, so they just changed the way they counted them and then touted it as a forty percent reduction. It's not the case at all. High uh, gas prices are really bad. Prices have gone down three cents in the last two weeks. Woo! We're all even better. That's three cents as the national average per gallon. Um, food prices are super duper high, as everybody recognizes. They were buying their Thanksgiving dinners. Um, these are all big problems that people feel, and they you know the people really you know what they people like to talk about it, is they call it kitchen table issues how they can't afford to put anything on the kitchen table. That's a, that's a pretty big glaring one. So look, the idea that the, the administration can spin its way out of this or, oh, if you just get the media to cover you nicer, people will start thinking they're doing better. No, they know how much they pay for a gallon of gas. They know how much groceries usually cost them. They know how much money they're making and they know how much they're spending in any given month. You can't fool people. You cannot spin it. You cannot Jedi mind trick and you cannot gaslight them on this. But this administration sure as heck seems determined to try. Wow. What do you
0: think the coverage would be like if George W. Bush or Trump or any recent Republican president had uh, tried to cajole the newsrooms of the major media outlets to say, you know, you guys, you really should be nice. to This is fascism coming towards us. You know,
1: (laughs) state run media
0: yeah very predictable either way this time the media's like oh well okay if it'll help
1: by, uh, way, you know, it, it, by itself politicians do off the record briefings and pitches and try to say that's all the time I and mean, if everybody goes into it knowing that's what they're going to try to do and generally you go to those kind of briefings in parties you, you know you want to see what they're going to say you're not necessarily going to you know report it credulously but also they'll do a q a and you get to ask questions and you know if nothing else you get a better sense of wh- how they see it but um yeah your job is not to say oh i'm sorry <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This bad coverage of the economy is, is complicating your day. How can I make it up to you, Prime Minister Klein. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yes, uh, giving people access
0: to government officials. There's nothing wrong with that, but uh, telling them how to cover the stuff is not. All right. Well, if the Biden administration's spin on its dismal economic record has you worn out, I've got good news for you. You can get a good night's rest on all the great products from my pillow. And look, you might be worried about. Whether your Christmas presents will arrive on time, given our supply chain issues, well, everything uh, from My Pillow is made in the USA, so it's in stock with no back orders, no delayed shipping for all of their products. Yeah, everything. 100 of My Pillow products made right here in the USA. They have a huge inventory, so don't worry. Christmas is
1: not canceled when you order at My Pillow. This holiday shopping season, My Pillow has full stock of all items on their website. Everything from the My Pillows at their lowest price ever, to sheets, slippers, robes, and now cardigans, all in stock and ready to ship fast. MyPillow is your one-stop shop for everyone on your list. You can shop with confidence knowing you'll receive your gifts on time with no issues. And remember, all MyPillow products come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty.
0: As so I've said many times, I absolutely love the MyPillow products. I'm looking at my slippers on my feet right now as I do the podcast. I love the sheets. I love the towels. Uh, the mattress toppers fantastic. And I'm sure I'm forgetting something. The bathrooms, they're great too. Uh, so don't miss out. Your family, your friends are going to love it. Go to MyPillow.com. Click on the Radio Listeners special for specials like 40% off all my slippers, 50% off MyPillow mattress toppers. Remember to enter, though, our promo code MARTINI. Or call 800-874-0104 for great MyPillow specials. That's 800-874-0104. Use the promo code Martini at checkout. Save now just in time for giving the ultimate gift in comfort with the best deals of the year on all MyPillow products. All right, Jim, we weren't planning to do another... Chris Cuomo's CNN story today. We talked about the the new revelations last week. We talked about the suspension yesterday. We talked about the fact that CNN fired Chris Cuomo. He also gave up his podcast. So you would assume that at this point, Chris Cuomo would be taking a step back, reflecting perhaps, just, you know, stepping back from the public eye for a time and then maybe making a comeback at another time. Oh, no. Get the popcorn ready. Get the popcorn ready. New York Post is pointing out that Chris Cuomo is about to sue CNN if it does not pay him the $18 million left on his contract. Last year, he signed a contract that paid him $6 million a year which leaves him between 18 and $20 million that he would still be owed over the course uh, of the contract if uh, CNN had not terminated him. Uh, according to the Post story, though, CNN has no intention of paying Cuomo a penny. And if uh, there's a settlement, there would be an uproar. Uh, another source says CNN has a standard morality clause in their contract. They can be immediately fired if they do anything of disrepute. So that would once again uh, suggest that uh, perhaps sexual harassment on his side, not just his brother, uh, could be a factor here as well. So, so, uh, Jim, we've talked about how this uh, you know, reflects so poorly on the Cuomos, on CNN, this whole sordid saga, and now they're going to potentially slug it
1: out very publicly, very ugly in court. So, Greg, right as we were starting to tape, uh, Eric Wemple The Washington Post has something of a scoop. He said that uh, a bunch of CNN employees were in a town hall meeting with the uh, network president, Jeff Zucker, and that the topic of Cuomo's termination was discussed. Um, you know, the, he was answered about whether he, he was asked whether he regretted how management had handled things with Cuomo. And he responded that it's easy to critique CNN's decision in hindsight. Actually, a bunch of us are criticizing it right then and there, Mr. Zucker, but he's comfortable with the decisions. And with the end result that was announced Saturday and, you know, uh, Wemple summarizes it basically uh, that, uh, you know, it's all CNN's fault or it's all Cuomo's fault and CNN, the network did nothing wrong here. And I don't think many people, who've been watching this from the beginning will really be convinced by that uh, self-assessment on the part of Zucker. But I'm going to make, you know, let's take a little bit of a moment to talk about one of my favorite topics, journalism salaries. No, um, (laughs) but just kind of observe. If you uh, study journalism, you will hopefully, someone will tell you early on, man, oh man, you do not make a lot of money in journalism. You better love what you do. You better love, you better got to feel a sense of mission. You got to feel like this is something you were born to do. Because there's always a chance you'll make a good living at it, but chances are you're not. And almost everybody starting out at the bottom, uh, you know, at least when I was starting out, there were a lot of jobs that were offering you know twenty thousand dollars a year, sometimes eighteen thousand dollars a year. Maybe you'd get a little bit more if you were living in a higher cost part of the country. But I think starting salaries, God, they topped out at like $24,000. And there were a lot of places where like you were you would be increasing a thousand a year. Uh, or so in your experience. So you were generally making you know, really low wages uh, and it's not even getting into the fact that you know, a lot of places ended up hiring either in people who had internships or former internships. Uh, now the internships you'd get you know, often involve college students and very often they would involve, um, you know, if, if you're found a paid one grade, you know, chances are you'd be making minimum wage if you were being paid. Uh, a couple would give you a college credit. And then the other ones, I just, you know, a lot of news, news organizations did have an internship program, which was basically the free labor program. Uh, you, you worked for them, generally doing grunt work. If you were lucky, they'd let you do something that ended up being on-air work for a local TV station or a newspaper article. I was lucky enough to have a good experience with the Washington Bureau of the Dallas Morning News. Um, But by and large, you were doing the grunt work, making the photocopies. Yes, there were photocopiers when I started out my career. Uh, You know, making coffee, filing, you know, very basic, uh, you know, secretarial style of work. And you're hoping to get some sort of useful journalism experience that could then get you another job. So you could get one of those 20,000 a year, you know, starting out jobs. Um, And yet, so you're looking at it like, wow, man, journalism, you never make much money. And then you look at the world of television journalism, particularly network news journalism. Man, oh man, the people up there make a ton of money. I mean, sometimes you hear about and you know, they're a couple million a year. If you're anchoring a show and it's in prime time, uh, you're making minimum a million a year. A lot of cases, maybe there are a couple who are making in the, the modest six figures, but a lot of them are are, are knocking at, knocking the door at seven figures. And you know, I guess that's fine. Um, but you know, I never want to begrudge somebody else for making a lot of money. But it does seem like an organization which, oh, by the way, is really eager to trash other industries for having low wages or not treating workers well or something like that. Boy, journalism does not <laughs> like to do that. And oh, by the way, you may recall, remember Chelsea Clinton when she worked, decided she wanted to work for NBC News? Oh, yeah. And she made like, what, was it a million a year? It was, some, it was, some, it was at minimum really high six figures. And people pointed out that like you could hire at the normal wages, like three or four correspondents for the amount of money that Chelsea... Uh, Clinton was making to, I believe she interviewed the gecko from Geico once. I think that was her her big scoop. Now, why did NBC News hire Chelsea Clinton? Because they wanted to be on good terms with Hillary Clinton. Hopefully, this would get them exclusive interviews and and all kinds of stuff like that. Look, I'm just one guy. Uh, Do I wish I made more? Sure. I'm sure everybody in this industry does. I just look at things like this and say, hmm, you know, when your network anchor, who I don't think is all that great, that's the other thing is like in the end, most of the time, Chris Cuomo is reading off a teleprompter. I, I suppose his interviewing skills require a certain amount of ability to think on his feet, uh, you know. But by and large, actually, I, I, I would argue that television journalists, um, they certainly aren't shoe leather reporters, they certainly aren't, you know, the ones going out and doing all the interviews. There are generally a lot of whole, a whole bunch of producers who do uh basically gather the story before the say 60 minutes you know star reporter sits down for the interview or something like that um conducting a good television interview is a skill i think you should be paid well for it um but the idea that that's a six million i mean greg you could find a good cornerback for for that kind of money on the free agency market you know and that, that that takes skill you know i'd like to see chris cuomo out there trying to cover somebody or being a kicker for the jets since we can't find one of them but um just kind of observing that that the field of journalism, it's got got all kinds of problems, but I can't help but wonder if the way that it has turned almost Hollywood studio-esque in which that, you know, being a star means you make an enormous amount of money and $6 million of that money goes to somebody like Chris Cuomo, who's reading words off a teleprompter. When you probably could find somebody who could do that for half and then take 3 million of that money and go out and hire more reporters to go out and find new new stories and new, new actual gather news. That seems like that'd be a better allocation of money, but I don't run these things. So again, I just kind of observed though, that if, if CNN is not happy for it, they, they're kind of frustrated by the state of things and they don't like the fact that Cuomo's going to sue them and all that kind of stuff. Maybe we should just stop treating television news anchors as if they are Hollywood stars or CEOs or, or somebody like that. And maybe they don't need these huge things. It maybe in the end, like there, there was an interesting argument who said that, uh, and I think when you saw CNN, you shu- uh, saw Fox News shuffle, it's... Um, it's uh, anchors a few years back that, you know, the eight o'clock anchor was always going to get the highest ratings. The nine o'clock anchor was always going to get the next highest rankings. And the 10 o'clock anchor was going to get it's the third highest ratings. And the reason for that had much less to do with the quality of any particular host and much more to do with the bedtimes of Fox news viewers. (laughs) More people were awake at eight o'clock than they were at 10 o'clock at 10 o'clock. You're competing with bed. I do believe there was some sort of recent, um, Uh, quarterly update from Netflix in which they said one of their major market competitors is sleep. And that's kind of the state of things for for television ratings and stuff. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's a free market, I believe in the free market network. But if CNN's not happy with what they're getting, maybe the structure and maybe the entire field of journalism, which we pay this pittance to people and, oh, by the way, only people who are independently wealthy can afford to start in this industry. You think that's going to, you know, affect who ends up walking through the door? You think that's going to affect who who comes rises up through the ranks? Um, that I suspect has a great deal to do with the kind of people who end up in journalism, and why. Maybe, just maybe, we're not collecting the best. You know, we're not recruiting the best and brightest because let's face it, listeners, you're listening to me right now. We're not getting their best. We're not getting their best. Uh, <laughs> They're not setting their best. Yeah. <laughs> no. So,
0: you know, you're right that interviewing is a skill, although I'm not sure in primetime cable news it really is anymore because I haven't seen an anchor that disagreed with a guest in years now. So it's just,
1: isn't this awesome or isn't this horrible? Yeah, it sure is. Wow. Uh, so but, that's, when it comes to agreeable conversations greg maybe this podcast should not be throwing <laughs> stuff. that's true That's true. but uh man Generally i can't. disagree when the bears play the jets that's the you know
0: yeah seriously yeah the bears and the jets have certainly wasted more than six million dollars a year on certain contracts over the years there's no doubt about that but i cannot wait for discovery in this case uh this could be really really juicy in both directions uh and uh it might mean that uh, this doesn't actually happen when folks think about this but we'll see uh nonetheless this saga plays on jim as always a lot of fun to be with you see you tomorrow see you tomorrow greg jim garrity national review i'm greg karumbas of radio america thanks so much for being with us today do subscribe to the podcast tell your friends about us Uh, Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Uh, Get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. And please join us on Wednesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Hi, this is Greg Corumbus, and I'm here with Dr. Mike Fulgens, the president of Universal Coin and Bullion. He was recently named the 2021 Dealer of the Year by the American Numismatic Association. Mike, one of the reasons I like Universal Coin and Bullion as a sponsor is because the people tasked with stopping counterfeiting and fraud come to you for advice. No one's more knowledgeable or more trusted on these issues. Tell us about your background and how it's unique. Well, I started collecting at the age of seven, was president of the local coin club at 18 and state coin show chairman. And then I went to work for the American Numismatic Association in Colorado Springs. I taught classes on counterfeit detection and grading coins to collectors, dealers, law enforcement, and then went into business, but went back to Colorado every summer for 20 years to teach about collecting, grading, and counterfeit detection. I've since talked to uh, the Attorney General of Texas and helped him with the Consumer Protection Guide and the Federal Trade Commission, and consulted for the U.S. Mint, the Royal Canadian Mint, and others. So I'm well positioned to help the public know that they're getting a genuine, high-quality product at a very good price. Dr. Mike Fulgens is recognized as America's gold expert by the U.S. government. Contact Mike and his team of professionals at Universal Coin and Bullion to own your gold and silver coins now. Call 1-800-UCB-GOLD.